to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48. The message tonight is life doesn't stop in troubled times. Life doesn't stop in troubled times. The Jews here had become way too comfortable and happy in their captivity. Now that sounds odd. But sometimes we can be in a place where God doesn't want us to be and we can get really comfortable. It happened to David when he was in Gath. He was there for a year and a half. It wasn't where God, God didn't tell him to go there, but he, was, he ran there. He went there because he was running away from trouble. And um, he, he, he got comfortable there and wanted to stay there hoping that it would take care of all of his troubles. The same here with, with, with God's people. They were in captivity and they didn't want to leave. Can you imagine being in captivity and they had made themselves comfortable, kind of saying, I like it here, you know? They had to follow God's advice in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 4 through 7. Here's what God said to them through Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I, notice, whom I, God, have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. They were instructed to build houses, to dwell in them, Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so they may bear sons and daughters. That you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Jeremiah wrote to the captives in Babylon, and he was instructing them to move ahead with their lives. Though they were in captivity, because sometimes when, we, when we're in those places that we don't like to be in, we stop growing and we just stop moving. And we're to be prosperous and we're to be moving forward and we're to be occupying, we're to be busy for God no matter where we are. We just have to seek new methods and new ways to do that. So Jeremiah, through God, God through Jeremiah instructed his people to move ahead with your lives, to pray for those pagan nations that held them in bondage. Now, how hard is that? We want God to wipe them out. God says, pray for those people who are holding you in bondage. You see, they were to be a good witness to the nations around them. You know, they were to be a witness for God, using their situation for the glory of God. Now, let's, as we hear this, let's kind of think of what we're going through tonight with this pandemic. It has been like a captivity for the last couple of years. You know, for a while we couldn't go to work, we couldn't go out, we couldn't go anywhere. We, you know, they, they just, we were captive. But that didn't mean we weren't to continue to be witnesses for God. We were to use the situation for God's glory. We are to use this situation for God's glory. They were to pray for the pagan, pagan nations that were holding them in bondage. They were to be good witnesses to the nations around them, again, using their situation for the glory of God. But instead, they used their circumstances for their own benefit. They got comfortable. You know, they, 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 weren't, they weren't moving forward 
Life can't come to a screeching halt during troubled times. In an unpleasant or distressing situation, we have to make whatever adjustment to the situation. Whatever we need to, whatever we need to do to keep moving forward. They were in a new place, new living conditions, new leaders that weren't godly leaders. And you might find it hard to pray for those that are in authority, and especially if they're not good people, if they don't have good principles. But see, that's who needs the prayers the most. Paul said to to Timothy, he said, Therefore I exhort you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, not just the ones that we like. He said, pray for kings, all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and reverence. And when you're in times of trouble or sudden change, pray diligently and move ahead. Do whatever you can rather than giving up because of fear and not knowing what the future holds. We're in a war. We're in a spiritual battle. D.L. Moody said this. It's like this, he said. When a man enters the army, he's just as much a member as a man who has been in the army 10 or 20 years. But enlisting is one thing and participating in a battle is another. Are you in the trenches tonight? Are you fighting the good fight? Paul said in Galatians 16, I bear in my body the marks, the scars that show that I belong to Jesus. Paul rejoiced in the scars that he had gotten in the battle. He rejoiced in the suffering he had gone through in the service of Jesus Christ. He said, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the wiles mean stratagems. He says, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And these days are evil. He says, and having done all to stand. He said, stand therefore. Notice, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. He's he's naming the spiritual armor now. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith in which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance. That's what it means. And supplication for all the saints and for me. Did you notice when Paul was listing the armor, there was nothing for the back? There was no armor to cover the back. Why? Because God does not expect us to retreat. God does not expect us to turn and run away from the fight. In 1 Samuel 17, when when David went to fight Goliath, it says that when Goliath arose and came near and and drew near to meet David, it says David hurried and ran toward him. Everybody else was running away from this giant. They were scared to death. 
It says, David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine, Goliath. And then after he killed him, it says, David ran and stood over Goliath. Notice David's courage in God. Paul said, we're more than conquerors. And you know what? Not, we're not fighting for the victory. We are fighting from victory. We've already won the battle. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, Timothy was a young man. He was a timid guy. He needed this encouragement. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a, strong, and a sound mind. You see, what God gives here, all right, to Timothy through Paul, is a contrast to what this world gives you. First, God gives us serenity. That is, God has not given us a spirit of fear. This world and Satan and sin give fear which disturbs, disrupts, and distracts our life. And you know what? Sometimes it results in paralysis. It causes us such fear we don't do anything. We're afraid to move. If you listen to the world and to what they promote, you will know real fear. Secondly, God gives strength. He said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us serenity, but he gives us strength. He says, but of power. God gives power and strength to overcome all situations and to overcome all evil. The world does just the opposite. The world weakens us so that we can't stand against any evil. And then third, God gives us sentiment. He says, and he gives us love. And we learn true love from God because God is love. It's who he is. He can't help but love. That's why God says love not the world because it's a sensual and conditional love. And then last, God gives soundness. He says, a sound mind. So he hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He's given us power. He's given us love. And he's given us a sound mind. The world and sin and Satan wreck the mind. It messes up the head. It messes up our minds. Remember in Luke chapter 8, after the demon possessed was possessed man was freed by Jesus when Jesus cast out the demon from from that possessed man it says then he was in his right mind so getting back to our story here God's people had houses they had gardens they had families but they'd gotten so attached to their new situation and they attached to those things that it wouldn't be easy for them to pack up and go back to where they were the holy land Jerusalem Nevertheless, the Holy Land, Jerusalem, was where they belonged and where God had a work for them to do. God told them that they were hypocritical because they were using His name and they were identifying with the city of Jerusalem, but they weren't obeying God. They were stubborn, verse 4 says, and they weren't excited about the new things that God was doing. If they would have obeyed the Lord in the first place, they would have experienced peace and not war. But you know what? It's never too late. God was the one who put them into the furnace. Why? To refine them and to prepare them for their future work. God commanded them, go forth from Babylon free from the Chaldeans. In verse 20. God would go before them and prepare the way and they had nothing to be afraid of. Now, you would think that the Jews would have been excited to leave their bondage, to leave their captivity, and to go home to their land, 
to go back home to see God do new and great things for them. But they'd gotten so used to the security of bondage and had forgotten the challenges of freedom. The church today can easily grow complacent with its comfort and its prosperity to the point that God may have to put us into the furnace. I wonder if that's what's going on today because the church has gotten so complacent, so comfortable that God had to put us into the furnace to to remind us, hey, we're here to be servants, not spectators. The people of Judah felt confident because they lived in Jerusalem where the city of God's temple was. They depended upon their heritage and their city and their temple. But this was false security because they didn't depend upon God. We depend upon a lot of things today. Other people, our jobs, our bank account. But that all can be taken away in a moment. We are to depend upon God. People feel secure because they go to church or they do good things or they live in a Christian country. Heritage and buildings and nations. Those things can't give us a relationship with God. We have to depend upon God personally with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. So with that kind of little bit of background, let's begin now in chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah. Notice, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but notice, not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and they lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. God's people had everything going for them. But something was wrong. Because their profession of faith wasn't in truth and righteousness. They weren't keeping their promises to God. They weren't really listening to God. They weren't really following through uh, the way that they were supposed to according to God's word. They were God's people only in name. Only in name. They weren't open to God's ways. They were limiting God through their idols. Their idols were limited, but God did whatever He pleased. You know, we've heard over and over again that that we know that God's ways and His thoughts are different than ours. So that should keep us humble. And it should keep us open before God. It keeps us willing to let God be God. Faith says, your will be done. In your way, in your time, by your grace and for your glory. Verses 3 through 5 now. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. God says, I told you a long time ago what was going to happen. And then I did it. All of my predictions came true, showing the, the, showing the trustworthiness of God's word. 
He says, because I knew how stubborn you were. He says, your necks are like unbending iron. Your heads are as hard as bronze. Boy, God nailed it there. He says, that's why I told you what would happen in advance. That's why I told you what I was going to do so that you could never say, my idols did it. My idols commanded it to happen. Thank God that he's not slowed down, hindered, or defeated when his people don't live by real faith. God, has, God already has everything all figured out. Here God takes us back, or looks back, notice, to the former things in the beginning of verse 3. He says, I have declared the former things. At every step of the way, God has been faithful to his promise. God doesn't break his promises. God doesn't fail when it comes to his speaking his word. In spite of us, he keeps his promises, not because of us. And as God continues to bless us, I think that we might get the idea it's because of our perceived talent, our perceived wisdom, our perceived hard work. We think that that God blesses us because I'm so special. No, we're not. Instead of us seeing God in all things the way we see things, we end up filling our lives with idols. So why are we like this? Isaiah makes it very clear. And Isaiah doesn't hold back. He says here, notice, we're obstinate. We're stubborn people. He says, and our necks are like unbendable iron. In other words, we're opinionated. We're self-assured. We're know-it-alls. We think we have it all together. We think we know better. From the very beginning, when God took Israel out of Egypt, he knew how they were. He knew that they were stiff-necked, stubborn people. And God didn't choose them because they were better than any other people or any other nation. God chose them, and he didn't choose us for any of those reasons either. God chose them, and he chose us because of his grace, because of his goodness, because he saw our great need. But with respect, well, I'm sorry, with disrespect and no shame, Israel continues to refuse to admit to the truth. And that's why God says, that's why I told you what was going to happen before it happened so that you could never say your idols did it, your idols commanded it to happen. Verses 6 through 8. You have heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning And before this day, you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course, I knew them. Verse 8, surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago, your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called, notice, a transgressor from the womb. From the day they were born, called transgressors. We're sinners from the day we're born. So in verses 6 through 8, God is saying, you know what? I'm going to do new things in the future. And he's telling them about the things that he hasn't told them before. And Isaiah is saying here, I've showed you the new things from this time, even the hidden things. I've showed you things that I haven't told you about yet, things that you don't even know about. So God says, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you these things that haven't been written yet. He says, it's new, it's fresh, so that you won't go around saying, okay, I knew it all the time. 
So God wants to work, as always, God wants to work in your life. God wants to do wonderful things for you. But you see, He wants you to praise Him and give Him the glory for what He does when He does it. He wants you to give Him the credit. You see, that seems to be the hard part for us. We want to take the credit. We want to pat ourselves on the back and say, look what I've done. And you know, we're willing to give the credit to almost anything or anybody but God. You know, we pray and we we seek God and we find ourselves in trouble and then God answers and we say, oh man, I really lucked out. We have a tendency to say, oh, it was luck. It was chance. Rather than say, thank you, God. You are so good to me. God, thank you for answering my prayer and for meeting my need. So God is saying here, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. So when I do it, you won't say, my idols did it. No, God did it. And here, he's promised his people almost two years before it happened that he was going to do it, that he was going to deliver them. And because he's done it, he says, you can't give your idol the credit for it. But God knew that they weren't listening, he says in verse 8. In other words, they were traitors. They were disloyal to God. They had turned their backs on God and they had forsaken Him. They had denied God because they were rebels from birth. They were transgressors from birth. As a nation, they were disobedient. Even in the wilderness, God delivered them with a mighty hand from Egypt. But it wasn't long after that that they were in the wilderness before they were, they were disobeying the law of God. When God gave them the law, they took an oath. Remember, and they said, oh God, everything that you say, we're going to do. But the words were hardly out of their mouth before they were going their own ways. So the Lord speaks to them here and he has a lot of trouble getting through to them and he has a lot of trouble many times getting through to us. Verses 9 through 11. Notice it says, For my name's sake, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger and for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, notice, or defiled, and I will not give my glory to another? I mean, why why does God put up with us? There wasn't anything about Israel's behavior, attitudes, or accomplishments that would be a reason for God to love them and to save them. But He did it for His own sake. He did it to show who He is. He did it to show His people what He can do. He saved them. And God doesn't save us because we're good. Paul said, there's none that are good. There's none that do righteous. And that means none of us in the whole universe. There's none that do good. God doesn't save us because we're good, but because He loves us. And because of His forgiving nature. You know, complaining is so easy when life gets complicated, when life gets hard. 
And then we ask, well, why would God, why would a loving God allow all kinds of unpleasant things to happen to his people? And for two years, we've been asking, why God? How many people have died in the last two years? Sick and having effects. And, 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 you know, why God? Why would you allow this? This unpleasant time that we're going through. Verse 10 shows us clearly that God tests us in the furnace of affliction. But rather than complain, you know what? We should turn to God in faith for the strength that we need to endure and rejoice in our sufferings. Not because we enjoy suffering, but God, you have placed me here. And God, if you've placed me in some place that you think is best for me, then you know what? So be it. Because God is only going to do what's best for you and me. You know, and here's the thing. If we're never tested, we'd never know what God can do. We'd never know what God is capable of doing. And you know, we, we wouldn't know what we're capable of doing in God. And we wouldn't grow. And without the testing, we wouldn't become more pure and more like Jesus. God had put up so much, put, put up so, with so much with Israel. And he puts up with so much with us. Even when he sent them into the fiery furnace of captivity, he limited their affliction. That is so neat. God says, I will never give you more than you can handle. And when he puts us in that fiery furnace, picture God always having his hand on the thermostat. He knows when to crank up the heat and he knows when to turn it down. He limited their affliction. God puts up with so much from us. God is always giving us so much more and so much better than what we deserve. And the simple reason that he treats us so well is for his name's sake because that's who I am. I can't defile my name. I can't profane my name. He won't give the glory of His grace to any idol of any kind. And our behavior is not what gets us into the favor of God. It's not what I do that gets me in favor with God. It's our poor behavior that God uses to show His favor towards me. He, God loves us for reasons that only make sense to the wisdom of God. I don't know why He would love me. But the Bible says he does because he is love. And he loves us with new mercies every morning and he heaps upon us blessings every day, one after another. His mercy to sinners through Jesus Christ is what sets him apart from idols. Idols can't do that. Man-made idols, they have ears that can't hear, they have eyes that can't see, they have noses that can't smell, mouths that can't speak, hands that can't move. And people worship idols. God is a living God. He's the true God. It's only because of His nature that God keeps us from getting what we deserve. Never ask God to give you what you deserve. You'll go up and smoke. You'll be a puff of smoke in a second. 
Now, here's the other thing. God isn't frustrated over this. God is not having a a, a temper tantrum. He's not having a, a tizzy. He's not pounding his head as we block one divine move after another. We grieve his loving heart. You know, if you're a parent, you understand that. When our kids mess up and they don't do what we tell them or they get themselves in trouble, it just, it grieves our heart as a parent. But we love them to death. That doesn't stop. We grieve his heart, but he doesn't, that doesn't stop him from loving us. It doesn't stop him from doing his will either. We have nothing that God wants or needs from us to satisfy him. He just loves us because he's love and he rejoices in giving. And out of his fullness, we all receive grace for grace. God reminds Israel more, even more, that he's doing this for his own sake in verse 11. Because he won't allow his name to be profaned. He won't surrender to any other worship that belongs to him. Salvation is by grace. God's grace. So God's patience with Israel and her deliverance from affliction, they don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But God graciously gives it to them for his own sake, for his own honor and glory. And God will never give his glory to another. Verses 12 and 13. So he says, listen to me, O Jacob, or Israel, and Israel my called. He says, I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid me, has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. God now commands his people to listen to him. He says, listen up. He calls his people, my called. We're his called. Israel has been listening to idols and false prophets. But Israel is to listen to God, who alone has the words of life and truth, and who alone, the only one who can deliver. Notice what he says there in verse 12. He says, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. God says, I am the one who is the genuine, true, living God. He says, I'm the first and the last, suggesting that God is the beginning and the ending of all things. And before all things, he is. That is, before there was ever anything created, he was was there, he existed. And after all things are gone, he'll be there. God is the same always, yesterday, today, and forever. And as creation depends upon, totally upon God, this is the God of Israel. The God Israel is commanded to listen to. God made the heavens. He made the earth and everything in them. And he holds it all together. And he holds them in their own particular places just by the word of his mouth. Just by his will. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Verses 14 and 16. He says, All of you, assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. 
I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him. Now, he's talking about Cyrus. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Hear this, I have not. He says, come to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. Israel's God is not like the, dumb, like the nation's dumb idols. God has shown his love by his prophets. He sent prophets one after another through the history of Israel to tell them about his goodness, about the salvation that he has to offer. God worked effectively through his servant who he's called and commissioned. God's predictions have been known to everyone, and the one he's commissioned is Cyrus. Look at verse 14 through 15 again. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? Notice, the Lord loves them, and he's speaking about Cyrus. He, he uh, Cyrus, shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him, that is Cyrus. I have brought Cyrus, and his way will prosper. So God's making these predictions here. Make, he's making it known to everyone that he's the one who's commissioned Cyrus. He's the one who's enabled Cyrus, uh, Cyrus by the authority and inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit. And notice in verse 14, it said that, God, uh, that the Lord loves him. And he's speaking about Cyrus. Now you would think, how could the Lord love and choose a heathen king? An enemy. Well, it's not necessarily a saving love. It just indicates a choice of Cyrus for a specific person. God would use Cyrus to free his people from captivity in Babylon. Cyrus's purpose, Cyrus's job was to set Israel free by conquering Babylon and then give the okay for all of the Jews to go back to their homeland, Jerusalem. Only a prophet of God could predict such a thing almost 200 years before it happened. And God was telling the people that this was going to happen 200 years before it did. And it came to pass, just as the Bible said. So Israel could be sure that God will do his pleasure in Babylon, verse 14 says. Now also, look at the last part of verse 16. It says, uh, verse 16 says, Come near to me, hear this, I, ha I have not spoken in, in secret from the beginning. Here's the part I want you to look. It says, From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Here in the last part of verse 16, it is, it is, it is the clearest Old Testament indication of the Trinity. The one speaking in the last part of verse 16 here isn't Isaiah, but the Lord Jesus himself. Compare it with verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, in Israel, my call. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Jesus said those words. The word me in verse 16 refers to the servant Jesus Christ. We saw that in Isaiah 42, 1 through 13. We'll see it when we get to Isaiah 61, verse 1. The word Lord here means master, suggesting that the speaker here is the servant, Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. 
Compare verse 12 here with Revelation chapter 117. And it says, and John says, when I saw him, speaking of Christ, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Compare verse 12 here with Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The same thing that's being said here in this, in this verse 16 picture of the trinity verse 17 through 19 thus says the lord notice your redeemer the holy one of israel i am the lord your god who teaches you to profit who leads you by the way that you should go oh that you had heeded my commands notice then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of the sand. And his name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Like a loving parent, God teaches us and he guides us. And we should listen to him because you see peace and righteousness come to us as we obey God. So many people have no peace and, and, and just are wicked in their ways because they don't obey the word of God. Refusing to pay attention to God's word, to God's commands, is asking for punishment. And it threatens your peace and righteousness. And it's important that Israel think about what might have been the possibilities of experiencing God's grace for her. He said God's instructions are those that profit them. We will profit when we obey the word of God. In many ways. His peace, God's peace is abundant. And he said, your descendants might have been like the sands of the sea in number, too, many to, too numerous to number. This would have been the fruits of true obedience. This would have been the product of obeying God, which alone brings peace and security. We close now with verses 20 through 22. Go forth from Babylon, free, uh, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing Declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the, re the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst. And when he had led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. But notice, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So what is God saying here in verses 20 through 22? The time comes when every person has to decide what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. Will we settle down and stay in the Babylon of this world in captivity, enslaved in our sin, or will we venture out into the redemption of Christ? Like the exodus out of Egypt, God is calling us to venture out, to move out in faith, to move forward from wherever we are, especially out of captivity. He promises to satisfy our thirst along the way. Notice he speaks here about he caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. They were claiming, they were complaining about being thirsty. And what did Moses do? He hit the rock and the water began to come out of it. 
So he's saying here, he promises to satisfy our thirst along the way. He can split the rock for us, just like he did for the Israelites. He did for Israel so that water gushes out. And just as God nailed a perfect sinless man, his son, to a cross so that mercy could gush out. The mercy of God gushes out all over us through his son. That's something to sing out about. That's what it said here. He said to, to, to sing out this wonderful news. But you see, you have to make up your, you have to make, you have to choose. God will never force you upon him. Think about this. Would God win you over to a life of pilgrimage just to abandon you? Will God choose you and save you and then just sit back and watch you try to move about and get along in this world without helping you? No. Or can God make blessings just gush out on you wherever you are or wherever he leads you? Of course he can. Why? Because God is a good savior wherever and however he leads you. The most wicked thing we can do is to refuse the love of God. To refuse the grace, to refuse the grace of God, the mercy of God. Because that refusal is rejecting the very nature of God. It said here, no peace. In verse 22, there is no peace for the wicked. Now, when he says there's no peace, he's not, this isn't some punishment that might happen. It will happen for rejecting God, his son. It's not something he's suggesting might happen. He's saying it will happen if you reject God. My love that I that I that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. He says, "You know, will you let God be God to you?" In His just gushing, overflowing, outpouring grace in Christ, will you step over the line from resisting Him to trusting Him? Will you step over the line from refusing to listen to hear what the Spirit has to say? And will you step over the line from delaying to following him? You must make the choice. Father, we come before you to thank you so much for this awesome chapter, Lord, and your wonderful word. And God, just a beautiful picture of your love and how you put up with us in spite of us, God. And Father, it's not what we can do for you. It's what you have done for us. When Jesus was nailed to a cross, when you gave up your only begotten son to be nailed on a cross for our sins, that in receiving him, we would receive eternal life. And if you're here tonight and you've never received Christ, or if you're watching at home as we live stream this study to you, 
If the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and you recognize, I need Jesus Christ. I want Jesus Christ. I want to know the love of God. I want to know the salvation that, that he has offered me. Then I'm going to say this prayer out loud. It's the sinner's prayer. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord in prayer, you, you, you say this prayer to the Lord with all of your heart. And you repeat it to the Lord. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. Please cleanse me and wash me of all of my sin. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.